Welcome back to the nationally syndicated Price of Business show. I am your host, Kevin Price, talking to you about you and your business. And let's face it, when it comes to what's happening on the political front, it's all of our business. It impacts all of us. And when it comes to talking about media, politics, what's going on out there, Baya uh, Unger Sargon from Newsweek, uh, she is the uh, deputy opinion editor there, one of my favorite people to talk to. And uh, I'm not only a fan, I consider her a friend. And, Baya, yeah, I always love having you on the program. One of the ways I got to know you, and, and, and one of the reasons why I became such a big fan, is your book about the media and how insane it has become. I'd love for you to uh, remind the listener about the book, and, and I, I consider it must reading if you're concerned about the media. And if you're not concerned about the media, you need to get your head out of the sand because what's going on is insane. So, so start with that, with your book and how we can get it. And welcome. Oh, you're so kind, Kevin. Thank you so much for having me. I love joining you. I really look forward to our conversations. Um, I love that you have people on who don't necessarily come at things from the same place as you. I think that's just so refreshing and so rare these days. So thank you so much for having me. Uh, my book is called Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. It's available at Amazon or EncounterBooks.com. And it's really about... Um, why our media is so terrible. And, you know, we tend to think of the media as being politically polarized. But what I argue in the book is that the reason we don't trust our media anymore and trust in the media that historic lows in America is not because the media is liberal, but because it's woke. And I argue that wokeness is not really about politics, but about class, that the thing that made the media get woke was the fact that journalists went from being working class to being part of the elites and started benefiting from economic inequality. And so they wanted to distract from that while still feeling like they were the heroes of, you know, some big moral divide in this country where everyone who disagrees with them and who doesn't share their economic interests is evil because that made them feel good about themselves. And so they started obsessing over race and gender, which allowed them to stop talking about class and economics, which is the real divide in this country. Um, so that's the book. And yeah, I'd be thrilled if you read Thank you for your kind words about it. It just means so much to me that the book spoke to you. You know, it really does, and, and it's really opened my eyes to when I look at other stories. It's like, oh, I see what's going on here. Thought you would say. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they got some of what would Jesus do? I have what what the, what would Bhagya say? So so anyway, Bhagya, always always love having you on. You're you're uh, you, we need to be challenging conventional wisdom. And uh, I think you do that every time you're on our show. And even though you're right, we come from different perspectives. I'm, I'm center-right, kind of libertarian. Uh, you're a, a progressive, and, uh, you know, uh, that's your background. But when it comes to media, I, I have a lot of left-leaning people on my show who are in the media space, and we generally, ironically, agree on the vast majority of media-related stories. It's fascinating. And I think it's just an underpinning towards uh, the importance of objectivity, the importance of freedom of press, uh, the importance of uh, people being able to be heard, even if they uh, aren't uh, abiding by what the uh, what the uh, upper classes demand, which is what I think woke is is about, is stuffing things down our throat that a lot of people simply can't <laughs> they can't tolerate, nor should they have to. And uh, it's funny how we can disagree with each other philosophically, but really agree on important principles around the media. So I think that's what's fun about, about our conversations. So let's talk about yeah. this, this big brouhaha 
that the uh, Democrats had, you know, for years they've been saying, yeah, it's as long in our first primary, which really, you know, begins to set the stage and, and lets presidential candidates get delegate, delegates from the very beginning, that the first one is in a state that is uh, 90% white. Uh, 90, yeah, 90% white, roughly, and uh, that being Iowa. And we need to start in a place that's more like America, more diverse. And so they went to South Carolina as now going to be the first place for the first primary uh, for the uh, Democrats in the presidential campaigns. And when I, when I heard that, I honestly thought, thought, yeah, I thought it was going to be, I thought it was going to be a story that would blow up, but it didn't. It was almost like a collective yeah, yawn. Yeah, it's very you know, what, interesting. What is and, up with that? Um, so here's my theory about that. So first of all, the first thing to point out is, you know, Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg are the first two people who come to mind as um, dead in the water. You know, people who would yes. do really well in Iowa, really well in New Hampshire, really well in Vermont, and had zero traction with the black community, zero traction. So you get like, you used to have a Super Tuesday and that became, you know, really clear. But that's going to be really clear from the first primary now who the black community can, feels they can put their faith in. And that is not going to be, you know, Pete Buttigieg, and that's not going to be Senator Sanders. I don't know if Senator Sanders is going to run again, but he really was not able to translate his message into language that was compelling to black Americans. So it's really going to change the sort of, you know, the center of gravity of the, of, of, of the party in a way that I think is, is phenomenal because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the Democratic Party has decided that its base is the college educated when really its base has historically been, at least for the last 40 years, the black community, and they've gotten very little out of that relationship. Um, so I, I think it's a really, really cool and interesting move. The reason I think that you didn't hear more about it is because um, the black community's inherent moderation, right, it's, it's inherent moderateness, um, is something that um, our media is very uncomfortable with. And I'll, I'll just give you some data points. So, for example, um, only 29% of black Democrats, okay, not black Americans, only 29% of black Democrats call themselves liberal, okay? 71% of black Democrats call themselves either moderate or conservative. Now, this makes mm -hmm. Democrats in the media elites and the political elites deeply uncomfortable because they are not just liberal but progressive. They are extremely liberal. They are woke. They are very far left. And anything that exposes the gap between where the liberal Democratic elite is at politically and where the base of the party is at, which is Black Americans is at, you know, in terms of ideology, that makes them extremely uncomfortable because, of course, they do all of their woke nonsense in the name of the black community. So when it's exposed that black Americans are not interested in this garbage, they, they, they are very threatened by that. And so I think there was sort of like an unwillingness to talk about the impact that this is going to have, that moving the, um, the, the first primary to South Carolina is going to have because, of course, it's going to make the Democratic Party reflect liberal working class Americans, black Americans, Hispanic Americans much more closely because the first test is going to be, can you appeal to the black community, which is not woke and not very liberal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And by the way, to prove, you know, to, to endorse what you're saying or to support what you're saying, uh, Bernie Sanders team, he has not said anything either way to my knowledge, but his team were very critical mm -hmm. of the move. People that worked on his previous huh. campaigns did not like 
the idea. They came out and said that. And so, uh, you know, you're not going to hear Bernie say that because it, it will be equated to racism and maybe rightly so. Uh, but uh, it, it is fascinating. And proof to the pudding about the way blacks are. I, I've always considered blacks, you use the word moderate, which is fine. I just think they're very pragmatic. I think it's what works, what works for us, what works for me, you know, and uh, I kind of like that practicality. I see that in the black, black population. Do they vote liberal on a lot of things? Yes. A lot of that is, is based on, on just the uh, dynamics and the history and that type of thing. But, but there's, there's that attitude. And I think in 2008 in California, when the state of California was passing a, a, uh, you know, a bill for same-sex marriage and uh, Barack Obama was running for uh, president that year, that 70% of blacks voted for Barack Obama and against same-sex marriage that year in California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, there's, there's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a deeply religious community. Um, it's a community that is democratic, you know, 90%, you know, between 85 and 90% vote for Democrats, but at the same time, um, the community is deeply ambivalent about abortion. Um, you know, 35, 40% of black Americans are pro-life. There's a lot of ambivalence about the topic. They want it to be legal, but they don't support it morally, which is something that, again, the progressive left, which is, you know, shout your abortion, is like completely alienated from where this community is actually at. They, some of the part, um, parts of the community need social services, but the number one issue they're looking for are good jobs. They just don't have the same access. So, you know, it's, it's a complex community that's deeply, deeply enmeshed in who Americans are, very reflective of, you know, what the average American is like. And it is really, to me, it is really a shame that Republicans have failed to make more inroads in this community, you know, purely for lack of trying, as far as I can tell, you know, education, for example, extremely important to black parents. But you don't see Republicans going into the community and saying, look, we're going to give your kids school choice. We're going to give you an opportunity to get this kid out of this neighborhood, right? You just don't see that. You don't see them making the real effort. They've sort of given up trying and I, I really hope that we're going to see more of that because black Americans deserve a choice like everybody else. Yeah, you know, the last time we really heard that or saw that was Jack Kemp, the late Jack Kemp, who was a friend of mine, by the way, and uh, he's about the only one who really did it consistently as well mm. uh, for whatever reason. You know, and you hear a little bit from Rand Paul, but but not much. It, it, it's enough to make an interview more interesting. I've had him on the show and talking about some of this stuff. But, uh, you know, you're absolutely right. And to me, considering that jobs is really, I think, the number one issue for blacks, uh, Republicans seem to be a more logical party for, for, for them uh, if the Republican Party realized that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the, pro the Republicans have half, the, have half of it and the Democrats have half of it. The Democrats are very good at criticizing corporations, but their answer is like more welfare. You know, and that's not the right answer because, of course, the taxpayer pays for that, including the working class taxpayer. And th that's not a good job. You know, the Republicans are right that, you know, more welfare is not the answer. They're right that you need to be pro-business if you want there to be a strong working class. But they have decided that if you leave these corporations to their own devices, they're somehow going to come around to paying a, w a living wage that a man can raise a family on. And they're just not. I mean, they have to really, I think... 
they're just not. You can't, you can't, if you leave a corporation to its own device, it's not going to wake up one day and say, oh, this, this man needs a living wage because he needs to be able to support his family. Like, they're going to, you know, if you say, no, we're going to let the free market, and I'm, I'm curious what you think about this, Kevin. I'm, I don't think you agree with me, but if you leave corporations to their own devices, they're going to say, oh, we can get much cheaper labor in China, which is, has led to a lot of problems, including the deaths of despair, fentanyl, suicide, overdoses, thus by alcoholism, the downward mobility of the working class, which has been a disaster for the American family as well, because working class Americans don't feel like they can afford to get married. Yeah, I'm a, I, you know, I'm a, I gravitate free market. I believe in the law of comparative advantage. I believe that some countries can do some things better than our country. I believe that. But at the same time, you've got to think in terms of national security. At the same time, you've you know, you got to think a little bit like Henry Ford, who said, hey, if we start paying people like $5 a day, which was a crazy amount of money back then uh, when he proposed that, we'll have a bunch of people who can buy what we sell. You know, and if you move everything to somewhere other than where, you know, than where your primary customer base is, the, the creation of that, well, how do they pay for the stuff you want them, want them to buy? You know, and, and we're not seeing some of that kind of simple, uh, you know, economics, if you will, playing into this. I, I could not agree with you more. My uh, my husband bought me an economics textbook in the hopes that it would cure me of my populism, but it's actually just made <laughs> me even more confident in all of my uh, <laughs> populist opinions. Um, I was reading the other day about the multiplier, which is, I think, exactly what you were describing. You know, if you are making cars in your, um, you know, and you invest in your workers, right, your salary that you're paying them goes back into the economy, right? It goes back into the GDP because they're going to spend that maybe even on the cars that they're making, which they can afford. But if you ship everything overseas to make cheap products, right, and then you put all of your um, profits into stock buybacks, you don't get that multiplier effect, right, because it stays in the financial realm. And, and, and I think that that's exactly the problem is, we went from an economy based on production that really was, you know, had capitalism as a force lifting all boats to a market economy that's largely based in finance, which doesn't have that multiplier effect. Yeah, I think there's truth to that. Okay, talk to me about, uh, you know, uh, first of all, I wanted you to know I've been enlightened by this conversation because I'm very interested in the latent, uh, the latent, you know, the latent effects of policy or the secondary effects of policy. That fascinates me. And this decision by the Democrats to go to South Carolina first could really profoundly moderate the Democratic Party, could force it to be. A hundred percent. I mean, I, I think, you know, again, I think people to judge must have looked at that decision with dismay because, um, you know, he really, really was not popular with the black community in South Bend, and he never recovered um, from that during his uh, campaign. Um, that, you know, I, I think, you know, part of the black community's um, moderate, pragmatic side comes out in, in, um, in, in certain uh, gender conversations around the trans issues, for example. Um, you know, any Democratic person who, you know, candidate who wants to clean up in South Carolina is not going to be able to go out there saying that, you know, being a woman is a choice you make and not has nothing to do with biology and there's no difference between <laughs> men and women and gender is a construct. I mean, that's just not going to fly with working class black Americans. It's not. So there, I, I, yeah. I agree with you. We're going to start to see a really new kind of conversation emerging. And I, I, I think that's great. 
Yeah, and with that in mind, you know, and we're all, I always play beat the clock whenever you're on the show, by the way, uh, because we have too much fun. But, uh, you know, with that in mind, you know, was this, do you think this may have been orchestrated? Because when you look at it on the surface, and for me, when it comes to the politicians, what, you know, the most uh, cynical view is usually the right, <laughs> the, the correct uh, assessment. You know, to me, it looked like uh, pure pandering on the surface. But I, I, you know, we're going to pander to this group, you know. But when I look at it, I wonder how much of the people behind it were trying to force this Democratic Party more into a reality because I think success in South Carolina translates better across the country than uh, success in Iowa does politically. A hundred percent. But I, I also think that this was sort of a way of Biden's team saying, making it such that people will would see one of Biden's advantages in 2024 because, of course, he did super well on, on Super Tuesday. Um, he is, you know, compared to all the other candidates, there was just no comparison in terms of the black Ooh. vote. So I think this was maybe a, an interesting way for his team to signal to people writing him off, hey, don't don't count me out. Like, you know, we're changing the game a little bit to, to, to play to President Biden's advantages. Yeah, and his closest allies in the House that are black are from that area. And so, uh, yeah, yeah. See, I keep thinking I'm cynical, and then I talk to you. I I really appreciate the fact (laughs) that uh, you teach me so much, Batya. But no, seriously, though, that makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. It's it's very, very logical. Uh, I just find it fascinating. I think that the uh, media, um, it just shows almost a snobbery of the media that they weren't excited about it. And you know that I think from the very beginning by pointing out they're not excited about it because it is progressive. It's not woke. It is almost mm-hmm. anti-woke. And uh, mm-hmm. Iowa is very, very friendly to uh, woke approaches to things. So, wow, I learn more every time you're on. Uh, Bye, final thoughts as we wrap it up. You make me smarter. Thanks for that. Oh, you're so kind. Thank you so much for having me on. It was such a pleasure talking to you. By the way, it's with Newsweek Magazine. We went straight to her book, and I did mention in passing that she's there, but I love what Newsweek is doing. Uh, it's one of these magazines that's, you know, a very classic, uh, been around for, for uh, generations, uh, but it's one of these magazines where people go, you know, now look at it, oh, it's a conservative magazine. No, what it is is it's actually a First Amendment-type uh, uh, magazine in that it values the diversity of opinion. I think its opinion section is one of the best out there. Faya, thanks so much for being uh, with us. Thank you so much, Kevin. Talk to you next month. Look forward to it. I am Kevin Price. Stay tuned for more after this.